Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Dan Goodenow, and he is a neuroscientist and biochemist with his latest book out, Breaking Alzheimer's, a 15-year crusade to expose the cause and deliver the cure. We cover a lot of ground in this. What can we do to prevent things, just practices? And also, I want to say we are now fully transcribing these podcasts and you can find them on gabbyreese.com because we talk a lot about supplements and there's just a lot of information. So if you're driving and you can't catch it, if you just go to gabbyreese.com, the entire podcast is there. And we even talk about autism. I have a lot of friends uh, that are navigating and doing their very best and always looking for new information and resources. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I want to dive right in because I'm always curious, you know, why certain people uh, such as yourself that can go in a, a lot of different directions in, in medicine and science and why, you know, you really dove deep into Alzheimer's and if, you know, cause you'll hear stories about people who their father had it and they really wanted to know more about it. And I'm just curious for you, what was, um, you know, the reasons you're trying to unlock these mysteries? Well, it's really kind of a, a progression of things. So for me, it started really started in high school. Um, I'm interested in the way things figure out, you know, figure the world out as it is. And, you know, you take classes in biology and you take classes in physics and you take classes in chemistry. And, you know, biology was interesting because it looked at how organisms interact around the world and in ecosystems and so on. And of course, physics is interesting because it's like the nature of reality, like the quantum mechanics and all that kind of stuff. But chemistry really is interesting because that's the three-dimensional world that we live in. That's our bodies. That's, you know, we're, we're moving atoms around. We're moving electrons around. It's the, it's the nature of our objective reality. So everything about us is chemistry, both in the physical world and in the biological world. And so understanding how the world works biochemically became natural. And then as you learn more and more about this, um, it becomes more intriguing and what's nice about biochemistry is that it's it's modifiable. It's um, like it's it's not innate. Like it changes as we interact with it. And so I always got drawn. So my initial bug really was just chemistry because it kind of made logical sense of what how our world works at at at, at that level. And then your curiosity kind of leads you to one thing to the next, and you know understanding how the brain works. So my earlier research was in psychiatric research and how the brain processes information. 
And then when the 80s and 90s happened with the genomics revolution, people said, oh, we started unlocking the genomes. Like for most of the 20th century, it was biochemistry. And biochemistry was king. Like we were all of the drug development that happened. Um, people forget that in the 40s and 50s, there was a psychiatric hospital almost every corner. We had huge percentages of the population were locked up in psychiatric facilities because of mental disease. And then we had pharmace pharmaceutical activity, you know, with the chlorpromazine, which was developed for tuberculosis, and they realized it was helping people with schizophrenia. And, and so they were able to pharmacologically treat people. It's kind of like how the antibiotics first began. When they first got, found penicillin, it was like this panacea of, oh, wow, we can, we can cure everything with, with antibiotics. And then same thing happened with small molecule chem, you know, drugs, but that reaches a limit. And so biochemistry was king for many decades until the genomics revolution happened in the 90s and people started sequencing genomes. And they said, wow, maybe this is how it all works. Like these, everything is in, everything is in the genes, right? So it's like a fad. It's like a scientific fad, right? So, okay, everything we need to know in the world is in the genes. And it consumes a lot of energy. And scientists like to be famous. They like to find new things. And so here's this whole brand new playground to start discovering new things. And, and it was a lot of work to sequence these genomes because they're big. A lot of the work was done in plants before we actually did the human genome. But the thing with genetics is that it's a linear sequence of bases. So it has actually relatively simple building blocks. It's complicated in the sheer scale of your genome. But the actual individual sequences themselves are quite simple. Just a lot of work. Biochemistry doesn't work that way. So biochemistry is not a linear sequence of subcomponents. Like your peptides, you know, proteins have 19, 20, 21 amino acids, depending upon what species you're in. The, the genetic code has four, but metabolites like your glucose and your fats and your steroids and your hormones and your lipids, that's an infinite space. Um, there's more possibilities than there are particles in the universe. And so it's, it's not something that can be mapped like say once, say once you map the human genome, you have X number of genes and you can now build chips for it, technology for it, and so on. And there wasn't really a technology to do this biochemistry because genes are latent risk, but they don't actually have any deterministic capabilities. So genes don't cause disease. The environment triggers a disease. D disease disease chooses disease. You know, you get you, you your your genetics are they, 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 they choose which disease you get. They don't give you the disease that you get. So you have a common stressor. You, you give a common stressor to, you know, 100 people. And so you have one common environmental stress, but the persons, those 100 individuals have different genetic codes. And so they will have a different reaction and that their individual predisposition will determine how that stress translates into them disease-wise. I want you to continue to, to stay there. What I was just really curious about is, you know, obviously epigenetics has sort of become very popular also in the last 10 to 15 years. And it's like, if you took twins with the same genes and exposed them, you know, there's certain different factors. Also, when you say predisposed, do, do scientists and doctors consider, you know, it's sort of like not only the genetic predisposition, but even the person's you know, sort of personality. So for example, one person who can let things roll off them versus another person who maybe gets anxious or has stress or different, you know, coupled with lifestyle and other things, 
do, does all of this, when you guys look at it, do, is this all a consideration? And I know you're looking for the constant and for the science, but I'm, I'm wondering if that always shows up though. Absolutely. So the, the goal for optimizing your health and your functionality is to create an environment that your genes are happy to be in, not the other way around. Okay. Your genes are there to protect you. Your genes are there to help you survive. Your genes are your friend and you're not usually a friend back is a problem. And so the, so you, if you have a certain genetic predisposition, your genes are saying, this is my happy place. If you put me out of my happy place, bad things will happen. And so, and they're usually screaming at you to tell you what that actually is. And we're just too ignorant and to, to listen to them half the time. But so, how yeah, it, so that's how they, where lifestyle comes from. How do they let us know? So your biochemistry will change. So say you have a methyltransferase genetic defect where you can't methylate properly. Your homocysteine levels might be too low um, or it might be too high, depending upon it, or your creatinine level. So your biochemistry always tells you what's going on. Um, and so your body will seek an appropriate equilibrium. Autistic children, for example, and mul- women with multiple sclerosis, that's a 100% mitochondrial mediated disease mechanism. So aut- autism is probably one of the best examples of this because here's a disease that used to be a neurodevelopmental disease. Back in the 40s and 50s, there'd be one case of autism per, say, 300,000 children. It was a very rare disease. And children were born with autism. You didn't acquire autism. It was only until in the 70s it started cropping up and then now in the 80s and 90s. And so now what we have is we have an environmental disease masquerading as an old neurodevelopmental disease. See, children are not born with autism today. They acquire autism. They may have risk for it. And then they usually a triggering point in their lives. And so, and they, so they have a mitochondrial insufficiency. Um, the gender bias is driven by um, beta estradiol levels. Um, about 25% of boys will have girl levels of beta estradiol and about 25% of girls have boy levels at, in pre-puberty. And beta estradiol is a very powerful neuroprotectant. And so the symptomology that an autistic, so we see three times more boys with autism than girls. And that's because they have, boys have a genetic or a envir- um, metabolic weakness when it comes to certain um, oxidative stress. So beta estradiol is a very powerful neuroprotectant. So when girls, there's the same number of girls with autism phenotype. They just don't express it uh, symptomatically. And you fast forward to women in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and you have the exact flip. About three times more women get multiple sclerosis than men. And multiple women with multiple sclerosis, their disease symptoms go away when they go into, get into the pro-estrous cycle. So most women with MS, if they get pregnant, their symptoms are, they feel the best in their life while they're pregnant. And the disease transitions into the secondary progressive phase post-menopause. So they've, they're losing some of that protective capability that estrogen has given them over their lifetime. And that's a very simplistic view. Obviously, there's a few more things going on, but that's fundamentally where it's at. So back to the whole concept of saying your lifestyle, whether it's your, you know, Autistic children will develop lifestyle modifications to um, cope, basically, with the neural inflammation that they have. And so that's kind of where, so if you have OCD, if you have other issues, there are behavioral things that you can do in your lifestyle, managing your stress, creating a life that has less of those trigger points, um, basically prevent those diseases from from occurring. So that's kind of where this all plays out. So yeah, so, so your body biochemically screens out what your genetic predispositions are, okay? Because anything that you can physically see between one person and another person manifests 
in the biochemistry, okay? One sister gets ovarian cancer, the other system does not get ovarian cancer. Well, the one that gets ovarian cancer will have a plasmalogen defect, will have meth- will have a fatty acid elongation overactivity. You can diagnose this, um, you can, and you can deal with that. So those are the things that we just don't... We have a lot of knowledge. The science is not... The problem with science isn't a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of applying knowledge, being able to implement it into people's lives. It's the logistics of delivering targeted actionable things. And that's kind of where it really, my life has changed from a personal level, because I've been that ivory tower scientist guy looking at humans, you know, wandering around free ranging. And I say, okay, can I predict who's going to get this disease? We do these epidemiological studies and you identify these biomarkers and you say, okay, what can we do about that? And then it's always someone else's job to fix it. And these things don't get translated. So we have all this research and knowledge but delivering medicine, delivering solutions to individuals is really where the big problem arises. And so that's kind of, for me, my life has changed over the last five years is saying at some point in time, it's not someone else's job. At some point in time, it's your job. Okay. It's my job. And so it's time to roll my sleeves up and actually deal with real people, not just numbers and ages and sexes and genders and genotypes on a spreadsheet. And so that's kind of where I've transitioned in from that pure research role into, you know, real people. I mean, your book cover says a 15-year crusade to expose the cause and deliver the cure. I mean, you, you've you been at this a, a minute. How, for you personally, was that transition from, okay, pure data, pure science to now, uh, you know, d- dealing with real people and all of that? How was that learning curve for you? Well, it's, it's, just, it's not, I don't know if it's just getting older and, and watching the world, but there's a there's a big difference between how you want the world to be and how the world actually is. And understanding, so I've run some of the largest colonoscopy trials. Like we ran 6,000 colonoscopy tri- person colonoscopy trial in, in Canada. You can diagnose stage zero, stage one colon cancer with 85% with a simple blood test. Okay. Doesn't get implemented. Uh, implemented it in the province of Ontario. We went through about 50,000 people. And then the government decided, you know what, we're going to stick with the FIT test because we've already got the funding for that. And so that doesn't, so it falls besides. So our colon and pancreatic cancer screening, we do in Japan right now. But pancreatic cancer, okay, people, we can we can screen for pancreatic cancer. And if you have the high risk, you can go in for an ultrasound. Okay, ovarian cancer, no woman should die of ovarian cancer in this world. We can predict that way in advance. And, you know, and it's not even, not even ovarian cancer, it's fallopian tube cancer. So, and that's the problem with ovarian cancer is that there's no tissue barrier for it. You know, we can differentially diagnose bipolar schizophrenia from unipolar depression so that a man who who comes in at the manic state doesn't get given um, the wrong antipsychiatric drugs for schizophrenia. And a woman typically manifests in the depressive state. They give her selective serotonin uptake inhibitors and they can kill her. And so bipolar disease is a big problem because it still takes us seven years to diagnose this disease. And you can, and they have very different treatment protocols for them. And so that's where, and so these are the kind of things that, as I go through the different studies, autism. So I did a longitudinal study in autism, published it several years, almost 10 years ago now. Okay, written a full chapter on the biochemical basis of it. Looked at their parents, looked at their non-affected siblings. We can diagnose it virtually 100% accuracy. And fixing it is actually quite easy. So now it's pretty exciting because now we have plas- the, the oleic acid plasmalogens. Children are getting better, getting better quicker. And so that's what we do. Can you break? I I have several friends, several with sons um, that are either, you know, mildly autistic or a little deeper on the spectrum. Um, And, you know, I see 
how diligent, you know, with the diet and, uh, you know, everything that they're doing. Some of the ones that were a little more intense even did a fecal um, implant and all these things. When you say that there is things that someone can do, can you just go back there again? Because I think a lot more, like you said, a lot of people are impacted. And I know we're here to talk about um, Alzheimer's and the different, different between dementia and such. But I think the fact that you're talking about it, I don't want to miss the opportunity. We're here to talk about life. We're here to talk about increased functionality. You know, Alzheimer's is a great conversation starter. Okay. And it's a critical issue. I have a really uh, soft spot. I think we have a serious elder discrimination problem in our society. But autism, people, autism is fundamentally a disease of neural inflammation and of white matter. And so people get so intimidated with biochemistry and biology. They take their, their regular life, they're very sophisticated, they plan their world out. But when it comes to medicine, they throw their hands in the air. So I can't understand all this stuff because it's all these different words and all this and this jargon. And half of it is used just to protect us from you, right? Because we can speak in our own little language and we can make all of you sound like a whole bunch of idiots. So you won't ask tough questions because if you ask tough questions, then we have to have answers and we don't always have answers. And it's not, a, it's not allowed not to know. We have to have an answer of everything. So that becomes a problem. So let me give kind of an understanding of how the brain works. So, so you think, you know, your brain isn't just this big ball of mush in between, inside your cranium. There's, it's, it's like the wiring of your house. And you'll have connectivity, like there's switches. And so there's a switch on your wall that's your plate. And that connects two wires, one wire from the power supply from power plant, and then one wire that goes to your light bulb. And when you click the switch, the power goes to your light bulb, your light bulb goes, goes on. Turn the switch off, light bulb goes off. But there's a wire in the wall, okay? And that wire in the wall is like a regular wire that you guys see at a hardware store and it has a coating around it. And that coating insulates it and allows a signal to come from one part of your house to the other part of the house without burning a hole in your walls because otherwise that would not be a good thing. That'd be. But if you had a mouse in your house and starts chewing on your, your wiring, all of a sudden your, your lights work sometimes, sometimes they don't work. It flickers here, flickers there. And all of a sudden all of that connectivity disappears. So all of the neurotransmission that occurs um, your, your brain has a bunch of cell bodies that are deep inside called basically the, just cell bodies is probably the way to put it, like, like the nucleus basalis and all these different cell regions. And these are where the, the kind of like the power plant is, like where the, where the cells are. Then they, they have the, the fibers transmit out to the outer part of your cranium. And that's where all your maximum surface area is. And that's where all these switches are going on. And so autism that is like having a, basically a mouse in the wall chewing on your wires. And so the connectivity has a problem and that's where inflammation occurs. So when you get, say, concussion or you get a neurological inflammatory event, people with a lot of, a lot of people with autoimmune diseases, for example, okay? And that inflammation, what it does, is it, it, dis it causes a problem with connectivity. And so what happens is sometimes you have excessive firing in certain areas and these neurons can't build long-lasting relationships, okay? And so you, the neurological system of your brain, of your body, is like a personal society. It's, uh, it's relationship building. And it's about being able to have a conversation, say, hey, I like this person. I'm going to call him back next week, okay? And then I'm going to call him back next week after that. And all of a sudden, I have his phone number memorized, and I have this relationship now built up. And I built that up. But if you're a scatterbrain, if you, if you can't have enough calmness to, to establish a relationship, you don't make friends. 
and you make friends for only 10 seconds at a time. And so you're always jumping, 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 jumping. And so that's kind of what happens in an autistic brain is it becomes inflamed and its inability to make those long lasting relationships. So you need to calm the brain down. And the way you calm it down is the material that makes that that, that connective tissue, that, that wiring, is called plasmalogens. It's a myelin sheath. It's a white matter. And that's what happens. The problem with boys is that white matter in the brain gets preferentially affected. In girls, you get the white matter of the neuro, of your swan cells, your periphery. So your muscle, you know, people, the, the first symptoms are muscular issues, but they're also brain issues as well. So how you want to, how you fix autism fundamentally is you provide support for that remyelination phase mitochondrial support because that's the real underlying cause so n-acetylcysteine acetyl l-carnitine the omega-9 plasmalogens double check the b vitamin mix but those basic things work quite dramatically um, once you lower that inflammation and then they're you know and their gut so people look at their gut health because gut has a tremendous benefit to anti-inflammatory activities and so gut health is important and some probiotics like the the root carries are really good there's a like I tell people, there's a really a simple product, and I'm not, I don't have any investment in any of these things. It's a Gerber product it's in the baby section called Gerber Soothe. It's a liquid formulation of lactobacillus fruteri, and that has calming anti-inflammatory effects. So you want to resolve that inflammation. And once that inflammation gets resolved, their focus comes back. You can get eye contact because, see, their, their lack of connectivity becomes they can't filter out stimuli. Right. And so when you and I are in a conversation with a busy room, we can have a conversation and all the noise around, I can tune that all out. And so I can actually hear what you're saying. And so autistic children can't do that. Schizophrenics can't do that. They, they, they can't filter out. And so they, they'll create stereotypical behavior. They're, they're, they create patterns that teach them how to tune out the world that makes it inability. And so, and they can get better and better at it. So, so, but Autistic children never grow out of it. They just learn how to live with it, okay? And so as they get older, a 45-year-old autistic man has the same neurological inflammation that he had when he's 12. Um, he's just learned and to adapt with it and created patterns to circumvent um, the issues. So the inflammation resolving capacity is very powerful. So, th so that stuff I'd learned many years ago, but we don't have the ability to get it out there. So developing the plasmalogen precursors specifically for myelination um, was important. And I, I, I synthesized and I invented these things back 2006, 2007. Okay. Like when we, 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 we do animal studies where we do demyelination, we can completely prevent demyelination. Um, we can completely prevent this stuff. And so it's a matter of getting it into the real world and then realizing that humans live messy, complex lives. And what's going to work for exactly one person won't necessarily work exactly for the other person, but there's general trends and rules. And it's also teaching people that they're the only real expert that matters. You listen to experts like me and others. We have expertise, obviously. We've learned a lot about things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will work exactly in you, okay? And so if in, in you and your child and your life, you have to look at your own. If it works, you have to, people have to learn to get an expectation of success. If you don't train yourself to expect results, you won't ever achieve them. And then you'll over, your brain will override your, your gut because you say, just because you think it should work, if it's not working, it's not working. And so then move on to something else. And so that's the kind of thing that I think we, like I try to teach with people is saying, there's these solutions are basic. Like there's mitochondrial health issues, lipid management, phosphatidylcholine levels. There's, a, there's some 
biochemical metrics that are very easy to measure, very easy to fix. I tell you, the biggest thing for people to remember is that health is a singularity, okay? Your health and my health, your neighbor's health, your son's health, your daughter's health, health is health, okay? We know what health is. We've been studying health for 100 years. We know what health is. And there's only one health. Everyone's health is the same. What's different is our disease, okay? Diseases create differentiation because our diseases are what are different from each other. So as you move yourself towards health, everyone has the same trajectory towards health, okay? The pathway to that might be slightly different based upon that individual's circumstances, but your trajectory is to a singularity, not... And so we, we, we give disease protagonistic, deterministic qualities, like it is some active force. And disease is not an active force. Disease is a passive force. It's an opportunistic force. Disease occurs only in the absence of health, and it fills the void that health, the loss of health, creates. And the challenge is, is create the biochemical reserve. And like you're an athlete, and people, athletics and biochemical reserve and having a savings account in your bank are all basically the same. It's creating reserve capacity, okay? Like you, 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 you work extra for five days, so you don't have to work very hard for two days. Okay, so I work out to build muscle strength. So on the days that I'm not working out, I have excess muscle strength capacity. So I've created reserve muscle strength. I've created reserve mitochondrial capacity. And so that I have my systems working um, at less than capacity, which is where you want to be. Biochemically, they're the same way. You want to create biochemical reserve capacity. And you do it the same way you create physical reserve capacity, is that you understand what systems you want to build up, and then you build them up, and then you maintain them there. Because if you don't you know, you can get athletic for a certain period of time, but if you stop, then you'll eventually lose that reserve capacity. Oh yeah. It's, it's, listen, I, I call it priming the pump where, okay, in the beginning there's no water. So maybe you have to work really hard, but then once you get it going, you have, but you have to keep it going. And the other thing is, is you do have to, you know, change up the external forces so that you can at least, you know, that maintenance stays the same because otherwise you adapt and you don't really get anything out of it. So I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm, you know, the one thing I, I always am, you know, and that's why I, I love the opportunity to talk to people like you is because it's also the reminder that people do have to be their best own health advocate. I talk about that all the time. And also you have to be accountable. Like if I come see you and you say, hey, this is what's happening and here's your homework. The other side of it is people have to be compliant. And that seems sometimes very difficult for a lot of people to do. But in your mind's eye, when we just talk about, again, health, is it whether you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, is it getting first a look under the hood? Is it blood work? And if it is blood work, what are what am I looking for? Because, you know, when we hear all the information about, oh, cholesterol is not really connected to heart health. And is it they large particles or small particles? And if it's large, it's okay. If it's, you know, so there's all this sort of, I don't want to say fake markers, but there's been a lot of attention to certain markers versus if you were going to go in or bring a family member in and they're overall pretty healthy, just to take a look, a snapshot, what are you wanting that's a really good question. So, and that's, there's about three or four core operating systems for the human body that you want functioning. And then you also want to understand what your goal and objective is. When you're younger, you want athletic performance and so on and so forth. So first thing is to understand how the body actually works. Okay. The human body is a fundamentally a hybrid electric. Okay. We burn hydrocarbons. Okay. We, we ingest hydrocarbons and sugars and fats, proteins, and we breathe in oxygen from the air and we and we convert that oxygen with these hydrocarbons to burn it. 
we create carbon dioxide in water. And you breathe the carbon dioxide out and you pee the water out. And that's what your body does. It burns energy. And it creates that, the same thing your car engine does. And then it uses the energy, it, turns it, it converts it into electrochemical energy, like a battery energy. And that battery energy runs your mitochondria. It's called your electron transport chain. So at the very core of your of human existence is mitochondrial function. All inflammation, all oxidative stress, all comes from mitochondrial insufficiency, which is why autism MS is a big deal. And we see that later on in life as well. And most people, when they're younger, they have a mitochondria, if they have these issues, is a mitochondrial weakness issue. And so you want to create mitochondrial reserve capacity. So first thing is to understand that basic operating condition. So fasting triglycerides, for example. Number one, fasting triglycerides should be under 100. If you, if you ever find your fasting triglycerides getting over 100, then it means mitochondrial beta oxidation is insufficient or peroxisomal beta oxidation. And then peroxisomal is a word that hardly anyone in the world hears, but it's a real critical component because peroxisomes are the other organelle in your cells that, that nobody talks about, but it's what's the molecule, it's the organelle that actually is responsible for all the plasmalogens in your body, which is 20 to 30% of your brain. Like this is not small amounts, heart, lungs, kidney, retina, your eye, your steroids, Cholesterol all come from peroxisomal beta oxidation. That's your anabolic source. Your mitochondria are your nuclear reactor. Hydrocarbons come in, carbon dioxide and water and energy come out. That's supposed to be a completely pure burning cell system. So number one is that. Understand that for your fasting triglycerides, you need to get your cholesterol over 200. Your cholesterol should be between 200 and 240. If, you're, if your total cholesterol gets under 200, your all-cause mortality goes way up. Okay, this is, we're killing people trying to get their cholesterol levels low. And that's not just me. This 164 country data. I got, I got huge data sets on this. You need to get your cholesterol levels up. Then the next part of your human body is the membrane structure. Okay, so your body is not a bowl of soup, right? You, you're compartmentalized. You, you know, and you we, we divide ourselves into pieces so that a heart cell can be a heart cell and our lung cell can be a lung cell. And we, we, we compartmentalize inside ourselves as well. Like just like you, your kitchen and your bathroom, your bedroom, you do different functions and they separate them by walls. And so what gives the human body physiological structure are these biological walls. And they're made of membranes, of lipids. And so the critical component of phosphatidylcholines, like lecithins, are hard. People don't keep up on them, especially nowadays with, with a lot of people going into a vegetarian diet situation. They get very deficient in certain things. So your phospholipid distributions, plasmalogens and phospholipids, we measure those things. Because if those aren't sufficient, it creates stress and strain on a whole bunch of other systems. So that's part number two. And then the third part is your methyltransferase, but people may recognize a biomarker called homocysteine. Homocysteine is a measure of methyltransferase activity. But So this is an enzyme system that's critical. There's hundreds of them. Your genetic code, for example, virtually everyone who gets cancer later on in life, their genes become hypomethylated. Like you're talking about epigenetics, where people think about gene methylation, turning things off. It's actually the opposite. It, the biggest risk for aging is not hypermethylation of your genes. It's hypomethylation of your of the chromatin like of the it's called the, the repeating element of your genes uh, and that's what gives your that keeps your chromatin structure nice and tight and as you get older if that methylation dissipates your your chromatin structure kind of swells and all cancers have uh, hypomethylation in the in that's another. So your methyltransferase system. So we talk about Alzheimer's disease and people think, oh, the biomarkers for Alzheimer's, one of them is neurofibrillary tangles of the brain. Those are 100% caused by methyltransferase defects. So creatine, good old fashioned, cheap as dirt in a bucket creatine. Okay, People should be taking two, three to five grams of this a day. Okay. And and it's creatine is a funny one because it's um, 
people, we, we always get focused on the high, the bad side of things, right? Oh, are we going to get renal failure? And we look at high uric acid for gout and so on and so forth. But really, the biggest problem with the aging community is low creatinine and muscle wasting. And so your body has to make creatine, makes it part in your kidney, part in your liver. And so if you take a certain amount of creatine every day, what you're doing is you're just subtracting that from what your body needs to make every day. And your body makes a lot of it. So good old-fashioned creatine, people, everyone should probably be taking three to five grams that a day. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to improve kidney function, muscle function, and so on. So methyltransferase, get your homocysteine levels down um, in the medium range. You know, your phosphocholine. Choline deficiencies are a big problem in our society. You know, I tell people... Without diagnosing Steve Jobs, I can tell you right now, if he had pancreatic cancer, he had a phosphocholine deficiency. Um, virtually everyone with pancreatic cancer has a phosphocholine deficiency. And it screws up your cholesterol transport and a whole bunch of things. So that is system number three. Your peroxisomes and your plasmalogens, keep them up to snuff. And those are your basic things. And keep your inflammation under control. And then once you have the basic operating conditions met, low inflammation, mitochondrial function capacity, your fasting triglycerides are under 100, but not too low. Like you get some of the really, people, there's a, virtually every biomarker has a U shape, okay? And even though, yes, nine times out of 10, if you have a bad triglyceride level, it's because it's too high. But there is people that have too low, which means they're in a starvation mode and they're not. And so these biomarkers, the problem with the medical community is that we're in the business of diagnosing disease. It's about where do you fit in the dictionary of all the codes that I have? And it's not about treating. It is to a certain degree, but you can't treat to the biomarker because you can trick biomarkers. Like It's like having a gas gauge for your car and say, oh, I'm just going to move the needle and stick a piece of gum and make my gas tank full. Well, just because I move the needle doesn't mean it change the gas in the gas tank. That's what it's there for. It's there to tell me. And and if I if I start messing around, just saying, okay, I'm just going to move the biomarker where I want it, and and so all of a sudden the biomarker is no longer marking. It uses it, it loses its utility, and these are markers that tell us something about what's going on behind the curtain. And that's the you know, and so just move. So you want to use biomarkers to understand what's going on physiologically, and then act accordingly on those. So so there's a few basic parameters that you want to get met. Then after you meet those parameters, then you can start pushing the limits a little bit, right? So I can say that as you as you perform more, you need more. And this is the other problem when we get older, people eat less. And people this is another back to biology, physiology like there's a food supply in the world, plants and animal products, they have a certain distribution of nutrients associated with them. And humans have adapted over centuries and millennia to the distribution of nutrients within our food supply, which is annoying for a normal active person. And so when we start changing our distributions with corn fed animals and so on and so forth, really pro-inflammatory environment. And also if we start performing more as super athletes, then the caloric distribution changes. So the regular caloric diet of a regular distribution would have the appropriate nutrients for a normal person living a normal life. But when you start pushing limits now, you need to enrich your nutrient status in the caloric region because you now need more phosphocholine, you need more creatine, you need more things because you're now performing at a level beyond what your regular ecological balance would have been, what you what your what the human body is adapted to, and that's kind of what we. So now when you when you start pushing limits, then you say, okay, here's where we need to you know build it up a bit. So that's what I do. 
I, I'm always curious. So someone like you who knows so much on your day to day, you know, how are you observe? Like, how are you eating? Cause it's always interesting when people know, like, just, well, I, 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 I follow my own example. My, my, yeah. I've had my dad on these programs for years. He's in his mid late eighties. He functions like a 60 year old guy and he's an E4 positive carrier for Alzheimer's. So, and so you can fix these things. So genes are, you can, you can circumvent any genetic disease on the, in the planet because genes manifest their symptomology through biochemistry. So you can, you can neutralize the, the APOE genotype. You can neutralize it, the BRCA genotype for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Okay. You don't need, like you can neutralize these genotypes. So back to that. So yes, I do very selfishly do my own thing. And so, yeah, so we, sometimes we, we, we supplement for performance. We don't supplement for rebuilding. So my current program is I make sure I put my B vitamins. So, and I like to take my vitamins all separately. So I have a hard time with all these blends because even though I'm a scientist, I don't like to have to do all the math and try to figure out, I add this blend and this blend and that blend. So I just like to take an individual pill. So the B6, I take hundred milligrams of B6, five milligrams of B12, couple of milligrams of, of methylfolate and you, have, you need to get the methylated versions and methylcobalamin for B12, the proper ones. Okay. And acetylcysteine, I'll, I'll take about three grams of that a day, between two and three grams. So my, I take 600 milligram capsules. I'll take two of those. Um, acetyl L-carnitine, about three of those a day, but 1.5 grams. Creatine, I'll take 700, I'll take 1500 milligrams three times a day, um, morning, noon, at night. So I like to split things up because during the day, you're supplementing for your catabolic rate during the day. But during the day, you're not building muscle. You're not building membrane. You're not building memories. That all happens when you go to bed at night, when you go to sleep and your body switches from the fed state to the fasting state. So you need to supplement at nighttime for all those functions that are going on at night. Because some of these nutrients like um, cysteine, carnitine, um, creatine, they have relatively short half-lives. They'll build up over time, but there's an acute effect to them as well. Like they pulse in. Then I use the plasmalogen neuro, which is a DHA plasmalogen, and it's specifically designed for neurological function and neuromuscular junction function. And people who take it for a while, you'll realize vision gets better, your muscle memory, your recovery rates from exercise, quite a dramatic improvement. And that's for that activity. And then nighttime, I take the proton glia, which is the omega-9 for myelination rates. So that's what I do. And then I take lecithin, I like powder. Some people like the oil. I like the powder. I mix it with my salad dressing. I mix it with my food, no matter what I do. And um, what else do I take? Um, I'm sure there's a few. Well, CoQ10. Um, so on your site, you sell the supplements. And is that what you were talking about for the... So the plasmalogens. So that's really my entry into this world, so to speak, right? So I'm an inventor of plasmalogen precursor. So we've known about plasmalogens for like 100 years. We know how bad, how important they are because children that are born with genetic mutations that can't make plasmalogens, um, Zellwelgers, rhizomelic chondrosplasia, punctatic RCDP, these are serious neurological diseases. Most children will not make it to their 10th birthday. Most die before age five. So plasmalogen levels are obligate to human life. We've known this for a long, long time. But your body makes them quite well on demand. And we typically don't run out of them until we get older. So I invented, I patented a whole system called age uh, adult onset plasmalogen biosynthesis disorder. So as you get older, virtually all cancers have plasmalogen defects in advance before cancer. Alzheimer's disease, the level of plasmalogen defect correlates with the rate of decline. Plasmalogen levels in your brain correlate with your cognitive function. But the mortality is even more damning. So people that are in the top 10%, it's a 30-year difference in lifespan based upon your plasmalogen levels in your blood. 
30 years. So a 65-year-old person with low plasmalogens has the same probability of living to their 70th birthday as a 95-year-old with high plasmalogens has of making it to their 100th birthday. And so, and these are serious things. And so, so we ask you a question, where does this, where is this thing? And we're not dealing with a small trace level, you know, sidebar. Okay. We're talking 75% of your ethanol means of your synapse or plasmology, 30, 20 to 30% of your entire brain lipid volume. And you get zero of these from your diet. Your body physically manufactures 100% of them. And it's the primary molecule that your body uses to resolve oxidative uh, free radicals. So it's it's designed to be sacrificed, okay? And it's like a it's like having a fuse. It blows, and then your body rebuilds it. It blows again, and your body rebuilds it. But as soon as you, but when you start losing the ability to rebuild it, then um, it starts to bleed out. So we max our plasmalogen levels in the human body typically max out in the 40s and 50s. So from the first 40, 50 years of our life, we're we're making slightly more than we need. And that's incrementally building reserve capacity. The brain continues to myelinate. Like, so we talk about early childhood development and how the brain forms and, and all that stuff. But that myelination rate continues on into our 40s, 50s even, like the brain myelination. So you end up with this, after 40, 50 years, you build this reserve capacity. And then at some point, your ability to manufacture plasmalogens becomes less than what you're using on a daily basis. And they start to bleed out, okay? And then they'll reach a critical threshold and then we'll see symptomologies and there'll be a risk of course right like all things there's a risk and then that risk with the appropriate environmental trigger can turn into a disease so plasma the problem with plasmalogens is we have lots of them so hey if i'm eating a nice juicy steak why am i not getting plasmalogens because they're designed to be sensitive to acids because that's what they do they break down all your hydrogen peroxides in the body they're the principal neutralizer of hydrogen peroxide and so as soon as they hit your stomach you know, people don't realize this, but your stomach is concentrated hydrochloric acid, typically pH of one to two. It'll it'll burn a hole in your pants. Okay, it's it's acid. Okay, and so it's uh, and so as soon as you get that into your stomach, um, they they burst apart. So I design molecules that are precursors. So they're they 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 and it's actually more important than the plasmalogen themselves. So people that have say family members or no celebrities that have Parkinson's disease, right? So people that take par- have Parkinson's, there's a the miracle drug is called L-DOPA. And L-DOPA is a biochemical precursor to dopamine. And so you might ask, well, why don't we just give people dopamine? Well, because dopamine doesn't get into the brain, doesn't get into the, 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 the dopaminergic neurons. So they give a precursor, and that precursor gets converted to dopamine in those neurons. So I designed plasmalogen precursors in the same kind of concept. So they're not actually the final plasmalogen. They get absorbed, and they pulse into your brain, and they pulse into your neurons. And over a course of 12, 12 to 24 hours, they allow that individual neuron to build their plasmalogens. And then your overall plasmalogen levels will, will increase. So at 24 hours, they basically have, have converted to the final plasmalogen. But on a daily basis, you're actually pulsing right into those neurons. And this is why it's important for autism and MS, because the really powerful anti-inflammatory activity is that it goes into that cell, that oligodendrocyte, which is this, the cell that makes the myelin, and that allows that myelin to make the plasmalogen because it actually has better availability than the actual final molecule itself. So that's my entry into all this stuff. And then it's kind of like, hey, well, I'm fixing your plasmalogens. Why don't I fix a couple other things here while I'm at it? Well, and the thing I appreciate is you also, uh, for anyone who's listening, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes about your website and, and everything, is you have also tests so people can, it's not just like, oh, take this. You do also provide, it looks like a home oh, yeah. test. Yeah, it's called Protom Scan. And it's, um, 
So you asked me really how I got into all this stuff. So this genetic revolution thing, right? So I'm a scientist and a chemist, and there wasn't a technology that could measure all these metabolites. So my first patented invention was a invention called non-targeted metabolic profiling, which allowed me to measure tens of thousands of small molecules in a blood sample. And that's what allowed me to diagnose all these diseases and understand them. So this proteome scan is kind of a simpler to understand version, because obviously you don't want to be looking at 10,000 biomarkers simultaneously. So the core ones come out of it. And so it has two things. It shows you, hey, is there a boogeyman under the cupboard, that, under the bed that it knows there? Because I'm doing everything super healthy. And sometimes the healthiest of us, like I remember doing, I did Ben Greenfield's blood work and he was overworking himself out. Like that's a big problem with athletes, right? They don't rest. I tell people, look, I say, look, exercise is bad for you. Recovering from exercise is good for you, okay? And so if you don't give yourself the appropriate recovery time, you're just burning yourself out. And you ask yourself why all these super athletes age so badly, like, because they don't take care of the recovery time, right? And they think that more is, more is better. And if more is better, then more and more and more must be better and better and better. And that just doesn't work that way. And so anyway, so that, so the blood test is designed to look for that. And to give this feedback loop for individuals, because obviously you want the physiological response. You want to actually feel better. You want to sleep better. You want to see your strength better. You want pain from your muscles gone. Okay. These are the things that you can understand. You want your clarity of thought. Okay. You're, you, that, you want your brain fog to go away. These are physiological things that you can feel. Okay. We want to ha handle that. But we also want to provide that feedback loop for that. Say, you know what? You're moving in the right direction and get yourself to this. Like you just mentioned earlier, where you, you build yourself up to exercise and then you can maintain it, which is easier. So when you first find out where you have to move your biochemistry, it takes a little more aggressive activity to get there. But once you're there, then, you know, you just need to keep it there. And then you can be a little bit off and on on certain things. So that, so yeah, the blood test is designed for that. A lot of doctors, functional med doctors use it because it's a, it's a, it's a feedback loop for the individual. And that's kind of where it's very valuable. For the well, and, and I know it's sometimes scary. Like it's almost like we're wired to not want to know, but I think anything that you can catch early and like you say, move it in the right direction and, and it's just going to save so, so much of a hassle later. So I'd like to spend some time um, talking about your book. And the other thing I, I want to say to people is you, you, also have lectures on your site too. I mean, you, you have a lot of extensive information, but maybe we can just, there were so many, so many interesting things. One of the things I thought interesting on the curve for me, and I, I just want to get into that is okay. Dementia and Alzheimer's, but also that sort of men were a little bit larger of a percentage, like in 71 to 79. And then in the nineties, but in the eighties is when every time the women multiplied much higher, had a much higher percentage of dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so maybe it made me think about hormones. I have no idea. Like when they talk about if there's a, a positive impact of certain hormones, you know, like you'll hear about, you know, is it estrogen or what have you? Is it good? Is it not? Things like that. So I was just curious about some of those statistics because the the women increased greatly in the 80s compared they were higher than the men in the 80s by sort of a significant amount and just a little bit under the men in the 70s and in the 90s and i i thought that was sort of i wondered why well first of all alzheimer's or dementia people use them interchangeably and they're different they're different and you you really talk about that right. in your book and and actually let's go there first let's play let's build a foundation so okay so alzheimer's disease is a pathological designation 
of an individual. It's a character. It's classifying someone. And I say it's like saying it's a blue car with a hundred thousand dollars, hundred thousand miles on the odometer, right? And so you're using it to characterize it, and it's a string facts together. So back in 1906, Dr. Alois Alzheimer's had a patient, young woman in her 40s and 50s, late 40s, early 50s, who had dementia. And when he did a postmortem analysis of the brain, he identified these tangles, which is these protein tangles inside neurons, and then these plaques, these cloudy plaques outside of the neurons. And this became called Alzheimer's disease. And it was a disease of pre, it was called pre-senile dementia. And so it was characterized. And so the pathology was a way of labeling the dementia. Okay, They never even thought back then that Alzheimer's pathology had anything to do with dementia at all. That wasn't even, wasn't even on anyone's radar that pathology was causing the disease. They were just characterizing it. Hey, if you see this, this is what I see. So it's just a, it's just a catalog of this particular situation. And it was considered pre-senile dementia for people under the age of 65. Regular dementia called senile dementia was considered to be mostly related to atherosclerosis uh, for most of the time. Then it wasn't until the late 60s that people started doing post-mortem analysis of other Alzheimer's patients older in life. And they said, hey, you know what? These brains have similar pathologies to what Alzheimer's disease has. And so then then they called it senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Okay, so they said, here's, so if you have dementia, if I have a patient with dementia, I do an autopsy, and then I recognize you have dementia, and you have these plaques and tangles, I'm going to call this person someone having senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. People have Lewy bodies, which is a different type of pathology, frontotemporal lobe dementia, vascular dementia from uh, other aspects. So there's more than one type of dementia, which is very difficult to differentiate. Technically, you can, if you're fancy enough, but the differences between them are far smaller than what's similar. Okay, all dementias have this very similar aspect of it, and it's a cholinergic function. Ironically, it's the same as your neuromuscular junction. So the same neurons that are affected, the same biochemical system that affects the brain and dementia is also the muscle, the, the neuron system that affects the um, your neuromuscular junction. So sarcopenia, muscle wasting, is a bigger risk factor for dementia than the APOE genotype, for example. So people, you know, exercise. That's why one, you know, maintaining muscle mass is a very powerful preventer of dementia. People have good muscle function and lack of frailty, very, very low rates of dementia in that population. Is that chicken and egg so, though? Is back there, to that whole... But is that is there something that someone, or is it just a physical byproduct of a representation that they kept muscle tone? Or is it the fact that they have muscle tone? It's parallel. It is, okay. If your muscles are wasting, your brain is wasting. Roger that. Okay. And if your brain is wasting, your muscles are wasting. You should make a okay. t-shirt with that. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much exactly. So, so Alzheimer's pathology um, is just a characterization, okay. And in fact, there is no real evidence other than animal models and where we pump them up with these pathology that the pathology is actually doing anything in humans. So, so dementia is a thing. So back to this idea of of health of singular diseases diverse. So when you when your brain starts losing its functionality, then disease opportunistically fills in the blank. So when your brain methyltransferase system becomes impaired, homocysteine tangles form because that's one of the systems that require good methyltransferase activity. When your methyltransferase reserve is lost, you get to tangle pathology. Amyloid plaques come from membrane dysfunction. So when your phosphocholine levels and your plasmalogen levels in your brain and your, your ability to transport cholesterol go down, your amyloid plaques will go up. And so th- these, these are all symptoms of reduced function of the brain. The other thing too to remember 
we think of, and I don't want to scare everybody, but the penetrance of Alzheimer's is about 80%. Okay, so when you talk about people in their late 90s and you know, mid-90s, say the dementia is roughly 30, 35% of people in their mid-90s. But those are the people who live to their 90s. Okay, those are the healthiest of the healthiest who've gotten there. And so if you start, if everybody who died of Alzheimer's or, or dementia-related pathologies from 60s onward, 80% of 95-year-olds would be with dementia. Only 20% would not. So you're dealing with a reversal. So dementia is far more common than not getting dementia with aging. And so, so when you talk about age-related or gender differences, you're really talking about, you know, arguing over how many angels fit on the head of a pin. Because it really doesn't really matter fundamentally because nobody is born with dementia. So dementia is a rate of cognitive decline. So you, everyone starts with no dementia, theoretically. Okay, and then the question is, how quickly do you lose cognitive function. If, you're, if your loss of cognitive function is zero, then you have no dementia forever. And if it's 5%, then you know if I take 170-year-olds and line them up in a row and say, okay, now I'm going to walk you forward 10 years, 10 years later, the people who get dementia are the ones that had the highest rate of cognitive decline or neurological function. So it's all about function. And so we, but we need to characterize things. So we, that's the challenge. So for Alzheimer's and dementia, dementia is fundamentally a loss of one type of neurological system called the cholinergic system. And that's where phosphocholine comes in, your methyltransferase system comes in. Plasmalogens are really critical for synaptic release of neurotransmitters and all that kind of stuff. So, and you're right, I have lots of lectures. It's a, it's a rabbit hole of detail for anyone who wants to dig deep into that kind of stuff. Well, I think a, a lot of people are afraid of this and they, or they are helping someone who is managing this. Can, can we visit a little, well, actually, this is a really simple question. Saturate, you know, everyone talks about healthy fats for the brain. And I, you know, I've heard a lot of different information. How do we feel about saturated fats for the, for the brain? How do we feel about, you know, coconut, avocado, olive oil, you know, how do we feel about within reason, of course, we're not talking about, you know, drinking boatloads of it or eating boatloads of it? The fatty acid composition is less important than the phospholipid composition itself. So your phospholipids, which are the soapy parts of your membrane, so like your phosphatidylcholine, so lecithin, is important. And then the different fatty acid distributions, there are really only four fatty acids that matter to human physiology. All the rest are just bit players. Oleic acid, which comes from olive oil, okay, that's one is when I talk about the wiring in your walls, oleic acid is primarily involved in that tight, compact coating that protects your neurons. Then you have linoleic acid, which is your omega-6, corn, soy, canola oil. And that typically is actually the most essential of all our fatty acids. It gets a bad name because we get so much of it in our diet, but that's the one that your body can multi-use. It's the most important fatty acid related to cholesterol regulation and transport. So your HDL system, for instance, your reverse cholesterol transport system, phosphatidylcholine drives that. And so that's why lecithin, making sure you have good phosphatidylcholine is critical to maintaining proper cholesterol regulation and transport. You know, when people talk about alpha-linolenic acid and flax oils and all that kind of stuff, those are good omega-3s, but those are precursor. Your body virtually does not use them at all. Your body has two called polyunsaturated long-chain fatty acids. And these are arachidonic acid, which comes from linoleic, your omega-6. And people, it also has a bad bad rap because it's pro-inflammatory. And then DHA, so your omega, your omega-3 fish oil, 22 carbons. Now that these two, these are the two molecules that separate us from plant. Okay. So it gives our biological membranes fluidity. And so those are critical. So the DHA people always know about for the brain and the retina and so on and so forth. Very, very important. Um, and arachidonic acid is a backup molecule. So you want to have good levels of omega-3 DHA. I'm not a big fan 
fan of, of EPA. There is some data here and there. It's a drug, essentially. Um, but from a biological membrane perspective, EPA is a biochemical breakdown product of DHA. So it's a good biomarker, but physiologically, it's not that important. So those are the three critical ones. And so since in today's day and age, we're bombarded with omega-6, it's like salt. You can't really get rid of it. It's everywhere. So you want to focus on your oleic acid levels, olive oils, and your omega-3s, especially your long chain ones, like your DHAs, like salmon, fatty fish, and so on. The rest will kind of pick up the pieces from there. Um, in terms of now, when people start looking at boosting their mitochondria with short chain fatty acids, like, like MCT oil oils or um, those things have power and utility, okay? But it's, you got to make sure that your system is able to perform it um, because what you're doing is you're, you're shoving a bunch of extra energy source into a mitochondria. And and so they, they obviously work for certain people. Like they, there's there's a performance enhancement with it, but it shouldn't, it should be done carefully. And then the keto diets are important because they put you into a fasting state. But the other things, the other lipids, um, if you're taking good lecithin and other fat sources, you're probably going to be fine with your fatty acid composition. And then can we, can you break down for me, you know, because people are, you know, the combination of like, oh, I have the E4, you mentioned your dad has it, you know, so if can, can we just a little bit talk about that education of E2, 3 and 4, how we have two of them, what this all means in the grand scheme of things regarding, you know, your Alzheimer's and, and your brain. Yeah. So e, APOE genotype is another one of those examples where um, it's overstudied to a point that core purpose of it is missing. So APOE is lipoprotein. So how your body moves fats around the aqueous system. So the pipes of your body, like your veins and, and arteries, it's like your pipes of your house. Like if you pour oil down your sink, it's going to clog your sink. So you need something that can move that oil from one place to another. And so what your body uses to move oil around are called lipoproteins. These are proteins that are highly water soluble. And so they pick up these fat molecules and your fat molecules transport along on these lipoproteins. And it's these lipoproteins that then deliver them to the individual cells. And you have different types of lipoproteins. Lipoprotein B, which is LDL, that's the protein that plus APO, lipoprotein B, APO B, that's what sends all the cholesterol to your cells, mostly that's your LDL. And then you have apolipoprotein A, which is your HDL system. And that's what delivers cholesterol back to your liver and actually helps remove cholesterol from your cells. Now, apolipoprotein E is a unique molecule. It's ambidextrous. Act as if it's uh, LDL, and it can act also as if it's HDL. So, for instance, people who are born with a genetic mutation that they have no ApoB, they have no LDL lipoprotein, their body will make excessive ApoE, and what keeps them alive is that the, their peripheral ApoE acts as LDL for them. And so that's what they, that's what they use. Now, what what transports apolipoprotein E into the famous category is that in the brain, that's all you have. You don't have LDL and HDL in the brain. All you have is ApoE. So it does both things. But see, your brain is like Chinatown. It's a whole bunch of little streets back and forth. And the rest of your body is like the interstate highway system. So you have your liver shipping things from long distances, and there's long distances coming back. So everything there uses big transport systems. But your brain doesn't have that. Everything's done locally. The cholesterol for your neurons are, are, are made right next to them in their astrocytes. So it's not moved anyway. It's, it's all little streets. And so it uses APOE to move all this cholesterol for them. And, so, and, then, and then there's different docking stations for this APOE. So why the difference between the different APOE categories 
is that there is a single nucleotide polymorphism that converts, uh, I think it's aspartate to cysteine. It's a, it's a sulfur-containing molecule. So sulfur molecules in proteins are like, like those um, screen doors with magnets, for example, you know, right? And, and they, they snap together. Okay, those two little magnets that snap together are like two little, that's what sulfur molecules do. And it's called, in, in the scientific term of it, it's called, a, it's a disulfide bridge. But that's basically what it is. It's holding two screen doors together. And when you have uh, the different apoproteins have different abilities to create this disulfide bridge. And it changes their ability to efflux cholesterol out of a cell. Okay, and that's what changes the difference. So an ApoE4 carrier is a cholesterol saver. They don't, they hold on to their cholesterol and so they don't export much. Okay, ApoE3 is kind of in the middle and ApoE2 can't save money for the life of them. So they're always broke. And so they're always spitting out cholesterol. And so that's fine. When So so ApoE4 is actually protective earlier for parasites and bacterial infections. It's actually a protective genotype. And the counterbalance to the ApoE genotype is the plasmalogen levels in the membrane. Okay, so high levels of plasmalogens help export cholesterol out. And so ApoE4 only becomes a risk factor when plasmalogen levels get low. Now, an E2 carrier can tolerate low levels of uh, plasmalogen because they inherently get rid of a lot. Anyways, and so that's the basic bottom line of that. So then the membrane structure changes with with the uh, uh, um, with age. The ApoE4 carriers will end up with with excessive cholesterol in their membranes, and that will cause changes in protein function and specifically the enzymes involved in amyloid production. So amyloid precursor protein gets it, it doesn't get metabolized properly in an E4 carrier um, when they get older. And can people find out at any age if what kind of if they have an E4? Because I, I mean, you can. That's the yeah. other thing is you you can know. So if you if someone's listening and we're all in different phases of our life, is there best practices? So yes, knowing what's going on, getting your blood work, you broke that down. But let's say maybe if you could go uh, sort of decade by decade, starting in your either twenties or thirties, about maybe best practices besides checking and getting your blood work and knowing what's going on? Are there things actively people can do to avoid getting Alzheimer's? Because you, you hear about this chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation of the brain and your brain's the only part of your body that can't let you know. Like if my knee is sore, I know it's inflamed. I under, you know, it's like I can do things. And, you know, you sort of hear that if your brain is in chronic inflammation amongst the other reasons why you mentioned you know, the neurofiber fiber tangles and things like that, but that it's sort of like you hit a switch and then there's no coming back. It's like, you you know, it's like we've had this opportunity. Disagree with that. That's what I'm asking. Like if we have an opportunity to pull back, even if we're in our sixties and it's like, Hey, we, you know, there's things we can do to sort of pull that back and move us further from the ledge of Alzheimer's or that possibility. Absolutely. I, the brain has a very powerful regenerative capabilities. So we, and we, and this is not just, fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, MRI studies show brain volumes increasing. So if you're B12, if you're B vitamin deficient and you all, all of a sudden start taking your B6 and so on and so forth, your brain volume will restore itself to a certain degree. The brain volume loss due to a B, a B vitamin deficiency can be restored. You increase neurological function, we see brain volumes increasing. So the brain first and foremost shrinks before cells die. And so there is a there is it's almost like rehydrating it at stage one of of rebuilding brain health and lipids are the critical part of your brain so making sure that your lipid uh, compositions are done properly and then of course you need to to tilt the scale in the refill category 
And then it takes a while for that to start refilling back. But absolutely. So early on, the biggest things are keeping your body in a switching from the fasting to fed state. Your body has two gears every single day. Okay. During the day, you're in the fed state. And we're young. After we stop eating, um, we switch to the fasting state relatively quickly because of our caloric changes. As we get older, it takes more hours to switch from fed to fasting. And so that's why uh, intermittent fasting is very important. So people should be, as early as you can start getting into a 16-hour daily fast is important. If you can't handle that long, just make sure you eat your larger meals in the middle of your day and have smaller snacks that are low glycemic snacks later at night. Okay, because that's the critical part. So sleep is important. Sleep is not just important for building your membranes, but it's also how your brain drains your glycolytic, like the you know drainage works. Okay, those are the issues. So moderate resistance training. Your body is fundamentally lazy, so it'll use its lungs and hearts. Okay, but you have a lot of geographic. You have a lot of muscle real estate. Your biceps and your triceps and your and just basic exercise. If you activate these other muscles, they act as little, little livers and they help clean your blood for you. And they activating this our peripheral musculature is very important, improves circulation, but also improves the biochemistry of our bodies. Those are the basic things. And keeping up on like what we're talking about today is supplementing in advance. Because remember, like it's a different when you when you model immortality, basically. And immortality is, you know, it's people laugh at the word, but it, but I tell people either you're interested in immortality or you're just in palliative care. Okay. So, so it's either palliative care or immortality. And palliative care is, am I going to be, am I in two week palliative care or am I in 20 year palliative care? But if you think you're just trying to manage the rest of your life till your death, well, that's palliative care. Now, immortality basically means function. Okay. It's not about it's and, it's and people think, oh, I'm going to live to 150 or 200. Well, no, I'm going to live tomorrow. Okay, then tomorrow I'm going to live the next tomorrow. And it's because it's so weird because when people think about immortality, they think they 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 use a mortality mindset to think of immortality. So, oh, how am I going to feel when I'm 150? Well, who knows? That's not how you. What you want to do is how do I'm going to feel tomorrow? And if I can maintain functionality, if I can maintain my muscles, my eyes, my funk, you know, then that's what immortality is. Immortality is just a maintenance of function indefinitely. And you don't think about it. So immortality is really at the point in time where you forget how old you are. That's the true sense of immortality. When you forget, I don't know how old I am because it's how the date of your birth becomes irrelevant. Just the function of your body becomes relevant. And that's the true definition of it is so people that think about how long I'm going to live, they're basically saying is that it's a contest. And it's like, okay, oh, did you make it to 110? Or did you make it? <laughs> well, it's, and, so, and so it's it's not the point. And so 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 when you're talking about maintaining your health functions, that's the whole point of health as a singularity. So early on in life, you want to basically put yourself in that place. You talk about genetics, you know, epigenetics and all that kind of stuff. Those are all protective mechanisms. That's your genes trying to protect you from all the dumb shit you do. Um, that it has no power, no no control over, and and so that's and then you have to re then you have to relearn you have to relearn you have to learn to be dumb again. It's because our biases protect us, and we get we we actually end up over protecting ourselves to death because we we learn we get le- all these learned responses, and we become very sensitive to our learned responses. And, and that that's a hard problem. So anyways, I'm just babbling with no, you. No, Dr. Goodenow, this is important. You know, I'm middle-aged and I and I see certain little things creeping in and I'm like, oh, you're going to have to pay attention to that 
to your point about learned behavior and responses and things like that. Um, do you have an example, big or small, it doesn't matter to me, that you maybe fight that yourself, like how you navigate that and or how that shows up? I can tell you, me personally, since I've been thinking about this, and my eyesight's back to where it was in my 17, 18 years of age, okay? okay I can't wear my progressives anymore. So now I, you're showing off. Okay, seriously. And that's, I, I don't get brain fog. I, I work on a computer, spreadsheets, you know, I come home and my brain would be fried. Never happened. So my strength, I'm stronger now than when I was in my 20s and 30s. And I don't work out as much. Okay? I wish I did, but I don't. And it's weird. It's like you do a set of reps and I'm, I'm like, a, like, I'm not a super athlete. Okay. I've always been a moderate athlete all my life, but, and I, so I know enough that I know how my body reacts and recovers. And so if I do a set and I know my general decline rate, one set to the next, if I work out to exhaustion and that totally different now, and I'm totally older now. And so that doesn't make any sense. So like I, I do one set of reps to exhaustion and rest and the next set, I can do the exact same number. I don't lose any. And it's going, this is, this is weird. Like, this is like, like, it's kind of like, this is, you don't want to believe it yourself. And so those are the kind of little things that come up. And so I, for my own personal experience, now that I've had, these plasmalogen precursors have only been around now for two years. Okay, I've invented them almost 15, which is why the book says 15 year crusade, because like you can't unknow, you can't unknow things. That's the problem. And so you're sitting there and you're just watching people die and you're saying this, this doesn't have to happen. And so, and so, and obviously we're all our best test subjects. So those are the kind of things. And I've, so now that we're dealing with real people, the stories that come back to me are really heartwarming. Like we have, you know, kids getting their function back. We have parents, you know, caregivers, Alzheimer's. We get some pretty dramatic things. Multiple scrolls. I had Parkinson's patients that couldn't move. They're shoveling snow. Like, so this is the way, so when you talk about, can you restore? So the answer is yes. Now, how might be a little bit different in everybody. Okay, so the how part, and it's like funny, like you know, and as an athlete, it's like this four-minute mile thing, right? We used to be no one could no one could break, and it's Mike uses this analogy, which is I think I'm going to totally steal it from him, but it's like people thought it was humanly not humanly possible the human heart would burst or whatever his story was, right? In terms of breaking your breaking the four-minute mile, but as soon as one person breaks the four-minute mile, someone says, "Well, if another person can do it, I can certainly do it," and so that's kind of, but you can't. You have to visualize it. You have to visualize the win. You have to, you know, plan a pathway through it. And the hardest part is we're addicted to dying. We have an expectation of reduced function. We have an we we don't expect function to retain. We we expect it to be normal to lose function. And and so we've we've suckered ourselves into, you know, this is just the way it is. It's always been. It's never going to change. And I don't just don't believe it. I don't know. I certainly don't have all the answers. Okay. And, you know, I, I certainly will die trying to find the end. But, but, but might as well have fun trying while you're in the process of it. And so you might as well, might as well you know. And helping and you're and helping other people simultaneously. And, and are we, can we throw CTE in this bucket too, for people, whatever, ex-military or people who've taken a, some bangs on the head? Do we know if they have? Oh, absolutely. It? Okay. So, so for instance, the, the protome glia, the, the omega-9 version, that's basically a concussion preventer. Okay. If I had young kids playing football or hockey, they'd be taking glia before every, every game um so if you if you have omega nines that you basically can't get a concussion and so because a concussion is 
is a focused inflammatory state of the brain and then how to rebuild that. See, your body, as it develops, it finishes certain things. And so you have compartments that are fairly isolated. They're not designed to be biologically active. And those white matter tracts are one of those systems. So when, when the brain gets shooken, okay, with the, with the concussion, you get inflammation in the white matter. It's in the, the myelin sheath is this, this thing is, it wraps around an axon. Okay. And so it's deep inside there that has this inflammatory event. It's not designed to get a whole bunch of circulatory system. So it, it's kind of isolated. It's on its own. Like it's got to fix it itself in that location. And so, but if we can provide the right nutrients to that location, then you can basically start resolving that, that concussion. But yeah, absolutely. Um, we've seen some pretty interesting things in, in TBI. So the body is designed to work. Okay? It is designed to work and function. If you make it past your first year of life, you have a functioning genome. Okay? When it stops working, it stops working for a reason. Okay? It's not magic. Okay? Something is out of kilter. Okay? And all of medicine, we, we, you, know, you have a heart that beats 60, 70 seconds, maybe years of 45, whatever. It's a lot of beats for a whole lifetime. Okay, humans can't build anything that lasts more than a couple of years. And so this is a really highly functioning organism that we have. And so what our job really is, is to help it fix itself. We don't fix the human body, okay? But the human body has incredible regenerative capabilities. And it's our job is to help it fix itself. And if you can get it a leg up, it can do amazing things. Well, we, you know, I heard a great story that like, think about the machine, like to your point, it runs 24 hours a day and it, overall it's pretty quiet. <laughs> and like the miracle, it's amazing. It's, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, this deeper than someone like me. It's, it's like, yes, you have the data and the information, but every once in a while you, I think one has to step back and be like, that's an amazing miracle that we get, that we're, we're, you know, walking around in. I mean, the fact that we stand and walk itself is, you know, I mean, in our shape. It really is. <laughs> yes. and, we, and we take it for granted. Like we just yeah. assume it. And we don't actually, and it's just, it's really quite a remarkable thing. Um, and so, and it's capable of, of, of amazing things, capable of amazing regenerative capabilities. But we're usually our own worst enemy is the problem. Well, that might be a universal theme, you know, about who, you know, us getting in our own way. There's so much, there's so much, but I'd like to finish with, with uh, Tao. And then if you brain volume and, you know, cognition, like those two, the relationship, um, I just wanted to address that a little bit. That's awesome. I've never been asked those directly like that. So, okay. So Tau is really exciting. So Tau is uh, called a microtubule and it's a support protein of your axons, those big long pipes. And you have a cell body that makes a whole bunch of stuff. And then you have these long axon that delivers materials to the synapse, which is this switching plate, like I mentioned earlier. Tau is like a parasaltic pump. It's what your body uses to have accelerated organelle transport. And what it does is when you when your cell body way over here makes a mitochondria, for example, and it's got to ship it literally meters sometimes to the end. That's a long ways to go. That's a very slow transport system. But what tau does, it acts as a parasaltic pump. So what tau does is when it, it um, it's like a, it's like an inverted, I don't know. So when it gets phosphorylated, it kind of squeezes, it shrinks. And when it's, and basically it's like squeezing a water hose and it, or tube of taste, it's like squeezing a tube of toothpaste and it pushes the mitochondria or whatever organelle quickly down the axon pipe. Now, 
The squeezing process is tau phosphorylation. When tau gets phosphorylated, it squeezes and pushes the mitochondria down. But then the relaxation phase, when the hand opens up again, so that lets the next mitochondria kind of slip in before it can squeeze again, that's called phosphatase or dephosphorylation. It's that dephosphorylation process that gets impaired with aging. And that's a dephosphorylation process that requires your methyltransferase and homocysteine. So high levels of homocysteine contribute to making an inability for those, those, the tau to be dephosphorylated. And that's what causes the nerve fibular tangle growth in neurons. And so, so tau tangles themselves have no physiological consequence. So there's been studies where they've, they've made animals with high levels of human tau. Their neurological function stays exactly the same. Tau itself is a biomarker. So it's a biomarker of reduced methyltransferase activity. It is not an actual active disease agent, but it's correlated with reduced function. And the reason why it's correlated with reduced function is that if you have high levels of phosphorylated tau, which you're not supposed to have, so that's a bad thing right there. So but the question is why? So what's causing it? And the reason you're having it is because you have a methyltransferase defect. So that's tau. And that's why it's a good biomarker for aging, a good biomarker for brain health, because if you have tau, that means you have methyltransferase problem, which means you need phosphocholine, you need B vitamins, and plasmalogens, like we talked about. So that's the whole thing about... Yeah, and for someone listening, tau is T-A-U, and it's all of this is, is in the book. I mean, you go deep. I can't imagine, I mean, I know this is natural for you, but when I saw the organization and the, the graphs and the extensiveness of what you put together in the book. And can we talk about brain volume and um, brain yeah, cognition? That's another one of our pet peeves is brain volume. Okay, so your brain shrinks, okay? And, and people talk about, oh, Alzheimer's and this and that. But the Alzheimer's brain shrinks just in one little area, one little bit faster than the rest. Okay, but fundamentally, you have this, it's like, um, I don't know what's a good example. It's like a it's like a snowball. It's like an avalanche coming down a mountain and which is brain shrinkage. And you have a little rabbit chasing away. And that's the difference between Alzheimer's and the rest of brain shrinkage. So brain shrinkage is way more important than the Alzheimer's part. So certain parts, hippocampal volume will be more associated with cognitive decline, but brain volume itself is the most important thing to maintain, bar none. And it uh, starts to shrink probably around age 55 to 60, we start seeing brain shrinkage quite dramatically over time. And, it, and it's basically the brain, I know it's kind of graphic, but it's like a prune or a raisin. It shrinks from the inside out. So it, it, does, it, it shrivels and it, and, it, and it sucks itself off this, the cranium. And then you get this extra um, cerebral spinal fluid ventricular space. But your brain is fat. Your brain is made of lipids, mostly phospholipids, okay? And so plasmalogen depletion is associated with brain volume loss. Phosphatidylcholine, like your lecithin type of thing. So maintaining brain volume is critical. Um, it's a high, it's more associated with cognition, mortality, cardiovascular disease. Your brain volume correlates with cardiovascular disease. So, so as your brain goes, the rest of your body goes. So yeah, brain volume is a big deal. So keeping brain volume up is important. And that is mostly lipid methyltransferase related systems um, to maintain your brain volume and activity, keeping the activity level because activity begets activity. It's like your muscles, but not really like, you know, thinking, thinking muscles, like, but physiological. Yeah. So that's brain volume. So brain volume is something critical that you want to maintain. The plasmalogens are really critical for that. The best way to think about brain volume is like you're cooking your favorite chocolate cake for Thanksgiving. 
and you go into the pantry and you have everything you need, except you only have half as much flour as you need for your recipe. You have lots of eggs, you have lots of milk, but you only have half as much flour. So all of a sudden, you either gonna make full cake that looks like a brick, or you're gonna make half a cake that looks right. And so what happens with the human brain is you, you lose one of the material building blocks, the entire volume of the brain will shrink accordingly because your, your cells are like little bakers and they can only build your membranes and they can only build those cells depending upon what they have in their pantry. And so nutritional status um, is critical for that. Yeah. And is learning, reading and learning and not and novelty still important for the for the maintenance of, of brain volume if you're sort of doing other things to for the prop brain processing? Yeah, I think or is it a myth? I think cross training your brain is always yeah. It's a little bit of both. I think cross training is good for function. Your brain's always on. If you're living a life, if you're talking to your family, if you're, you know, if you're gossiping or if you're angry, like it, it's your your brain is working. Okay. It's never off. But what you want to do is how you train it in terms of modifying your behavior into positive action. And so where you where your positive feelings can come in because your brain creates stress, right? Your body reacts to how your brain thinks. So if you continually maintain a high stress load, the rest of your body is going to respond accordingly. Your cortisol levels will go up, your stress, all that stuff. So your brain does have huge amounts of control. So it's more related to a healthy, rich environment. Um, and yes, so cross-training is good. Cross-training your brain, like reading, doing anything different is good. And whether and whether it's directly related to your brain or not, it doesn't really matter because sometimes when you're when you're doing different activities, it forces you to move differently. Maybe you go to a different, you know, restaurant or you go, all these things physiologically cause you to better your life. Um, and that's kind of what and we do in the aging community. Deadlines are good for people because it gets them out of bed. It gets them, you know, social. Be so people say, oh, social behavior is good. Well, it's good because they get up and they say, well, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to, I'm going to comb my hair and I'm going to get dressed and I'm going to get up and I'm going to have a nice meal with somebody. So living a, a rich social life is one of the most important parts of brain health fundamentally, because that's really, because that's what we, the brain is just one big gossip. Like, that's all it's doing. It's just, it likes to talk. It likes to be involved. It likes to share. And so that's what, and, and that's, so he just wants to be able to, to do all that stuff. And so, Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.